This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. Welcome to the Constructionist Podcast, and in tonight's episode, we're going to be discussing the life of Christ as we see it through the book of Mark. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. What we strive to do on this podcast is to create or to help you create a relevant and compassionate worldview framework that will help you guide your life. And we believe that in order to achieve this, we need to get our first, our house in order. So that's what we're doing is we're just walking through our spiritual lives, walking through our personal lives in order to get that in order to be able to love other people as we love ourselves. So we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Jesus. And in this episode, we're going to examine the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens. So what we're going to do tonight is we're not going to make up anything. We're not going to make up any stories. We're going to give you just a very, very honest view of the book of Mark. And we think we can do that by just giving some great insights and perspectives from different angles and our different journeys to help you journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, um, we're again not going to be fabricating anything and our goal is to provide you with an authentic perspective. So in previous episodes, we've discussed that the potential pitfall of deconstructing old ideas without moving towards a new understanding. So I'm going to give you a new term tonight, and that's called radical theology. So we're not going to just deconstruct something and construct something else that is totally toxic. What we're going to do is give you a radical perspective to pull you out of all of our perspectives, including ourselves, to try to give a fresh understanding, to not get into a cycle of perpetuating the same patterns that we sought to change in the first place. So sometimes we need to completely step out of our traditions, completely step out of our confessions, completely step out of what we understand and to look at it with just a fresh new framework. So that's why the construction of this podcast, we just promote a place for exploring new ideas, presenting practical thoughts and theologies for daily life. And we aim to provide that platform for honest and authentic discussions on relevant topics like we're discussing tonight. So if you find um, this interesting, if you want to interact with us, go ahead and drop some messages in our direct message um, uh, comment section. Uh, we're, um, what we're doing tonight is we're closing down our comments underneath the social media channels. And so we're going to take direct messages so we can spend some time with those questions and give you some honest feedback and spend some time just exploring new meaning and understanding because we want this to be a purposeful experience. So we're excited to share our best attempt at exploring these practical ideas, applying these ideas and theologies to our daily life. 
So we're looking at, again, the life of Christ through the book of Mark. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, go ahead and go to ResonateLife.org under the Give tab. You can go to that Give page and you can continue to support us so we can continue to produce high-quality content like you're going to experience tonight. What I would say at this point is... As we've explored many topics together, the three of us, I would say that this topic or this subject matter, I would categorize us as pretty learned, pretty expert in this. Shreya Bodner has her master's degree in theology. Jake has his master's degree in theology. I have my doctorate degree in semiotics and leadership. So we believe that we at least have a foundational uh, framework in order to talk about these subjects like the book of Mark. So we're going to jump into it just by pulling up the scriptures and we're looking at Mark chapter 4. We actually ended on 420. It's a good time, a, a good verse, chapter and verse to end on. And so we're going to start with 420. And Sharia, if you wouldn't mind, you're going to start us out by reading Chapter 4, verse 21. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, I want to connect us back to uh, the section that we ended with last time because I think these go together. Um, So where we ended last time was the parables of the soil. So there's the farmer that scatters seed everywhere. Some of it falls on the path and the birds eat it. Some of it falls on the rocky ground where the soil is shallow. Some of it falls... um, among the weeds and it gets choked out and some of it falls on the good soil and grows good fruit. Um, And that's meant as a parable talking about the kingdom of God, talking about um, hearing the good news and what we do with that. Um, So I want to remind us of that. Um, And then we're in Mark 421. Jesus said to them, does anyone bring in a lamp in order to put it under a basket or a bed? Shouldn't it be placed on a lampstand? Everything hidden will be revealed and everything secret will come out into the open. Whoever has ears to listen should pay attention. He said to them, listen carefully. God will evaluate you with the same standard you use to evaluate others. Indeed, you will receive even more. Those who have will receive more, but as for those who don't have, even what they have will be taken away from them. Then Jesus said, This is what God's kingdom is like. It's as though someone scatters seed on the ground, then sleeps and wakes night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, but the farmer doesn't know how. The earth produces crops all by itself. First the stalk, then the head, then the full head of grain. Whenever the crop is ready, the farmer goes out to cut the grain because it's harvest time. Mm. I want to add also to this discussion because in my semiotics training semiotics means to look at signs and ultimately what the conclusion of semiotics is the study of establishing meaning and it can be a study of anything really and if i uh if i study if i study meaning in literature i'm going to switch something really is that better on my sound, Jake? Okay. Yeah, it's much you. better. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that. 
Um, if I study meaning when it comes to literature, I look at the signs of the text and I'm looking for different frameworks of the text. And so I am seeing in the book of Mark, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is kind of, it's not metaphysical. I would say it's, it could be a reach, but I want to sit here for a moment before we unpack this first section, because I think that this first section actually is one of the um, ideas of recreation. And when you look at the book of Mark, it seems like it's a retelling of a new exodus. And the Gospels are thought of, or excuse me, the Old Testament is thought of as this completely disconnected book from the New Testament. And I would claim that that's actually not true because the Gospels pull the two together. And the Gospels become the culmination of Israel's journey and Israel's um, plight. And so, again, we're seeing that Jesus is on the scene. And Jesus has a powerful ministry. Excuse me. I'm going to have to mute my text or mute my microphone because I have a little bit of a cough and I'm not going to do that in the microphone. For, forgive me when I do that. But in Exodus, we see God is like this healer, deliverer of, of, of the great people. And Jesus then is this powerful ministry in Galilee, like the healer, the deliverable, uh, the deliver, deliverer of the people and all of God's people. And as we see that then in the middle sections, like in Exodus, Moses then leads a deliverance out of bondage. And Jesus is leading a group of disciples basically blind disciples and blind leaders. She's like journeying out of this bondage, out of religious leadership, out of temple practices, out of almost like a slave to the law. So he pulls people out of that slavery to the law. And then uh, they, in just like in Exodus, they arrive in the promised land What's, what brings me to this thought about Mark being a retelling of Exodus or a retelling of recreation is in the other Gospels, like, like John, Jesus goes to Jerusalem several times. In Mark, he goes once in the end. Mm -hmm. So it's like arriving like the new Moses, like the new Exodus, arriving in the promised land, although Jesus actually makes it into the promised land and Moses doesn't. So we have this deliverance, this journey, and this arrival type motif or sections, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And so before we unpack that first section, I just want to hear your thoughts on that using some semiotics imagery. Could that be a possibility? Is that too metaphysical? Am I reading it in, into it? I know other people have thought this. Are they reading into it too much? Um, but Mark is such a short book. Supposedly, it's the first. It makes sense that it would connect the two stories together. Because that's all the Jewish people would be focused on is the Exodus. 
And so having a story that would be layered over the top of the Exodus and having Jesus as a new redeemer just kind of makes sense to me. But I want to make sure as I, you know, think in the clouds a little bit to make sure that that is a grounded thought. I think it absolutely makes sense. Um, I would guess that's probably a bit more visible in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but that's not the text we're looking at. Um, when I was in seminary, um, and this was a very conservative professor, I remember them saying um, that if we look at the story of the Gospels, it's like Jesus is um, following the Israelites' journey and succeeding everywhere that they failed. Mm. When I was in seminary, they didn't talk anything like this. And so I find that interesting. Is that a progressive perspective, conservative perspective, um, uh, neither? Is it a middle perspective? It's, it's only progressive. Let's, I'm going to say that. It's only, it only does high criticism if you think that the author is manipulating story in order for it to adhere to the, to the Passover narrative. And so it would make sense for Mark to to write with the idea of Passover, because um, if the second temple was just destroyed in 72 AD, and this is where we think that, that Mark was written at, because of the mention of synagogues and other things that are happening, um, they would have had to figure out, well, what are we going to do with Passover now that we have no temple? And so... And I think one of the one of the sayings in the gospel is in three days I'll rebuild this temple. And so right. that was one of the things that, that the that the Pharisees killed Jesus over was his claim of being the new temple. And so the mark starts in water at the baptism of Jesus. And water is seen all the way throughout even striking the rock a third time in the end and water pours out of the side. But um, I can't remember if that's actually a mark or not, but the idea of even, even the scene of, of Jesus that we're going to get into here soon is Jesus is over the top of water and water obeys, obeys his command. And so, um, or the storm obeys command. So it gives a really strong allusion to, the Reed Sea and crossing the Reed Sea. Mm -hmm. I think it, it 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 would be prudent to say that that it does mirror it very closely. But if you think that the story happened that way, or if the author is manipulating the story to happen that way, is is the idea of conservative versus progressive. Progressive, yeah. Or irresponsible. I would say that a manipulation is not necessarily responsible um, because that requires like changing the story or making up the story. Um, so if you hold to a more maybe conservative, I guess, idea that these stories at least happen in their f basic form, um, manipulating that basic form, I guess, would be considered to some irresponsible but you could pick and choose which stories you want to include right 
Right. So so or this is where I you, see you right. Murder. So this is where I would say this is not chronological. Um it's okay. it's geographical. So it's in a geographical order, but also a lot of people want to put the gospels in a chronological order and I would say they're chirological at best. So they're event logical um, versus chronological. And so, yes, Jesus dies in the end and is born in the beginning. Okay. But everything in between doesn't necessarily have to happen in the order in which it is laid out in the scriptures, in the gospels, because the whole Old Testament is not laid out in every event in mm -hmm. chronological order. So some of it could be uh, construed that way. But I would say that it's in, at best, geographical order and also chirological order. Kairos moments means like God moments and so spiritual moments. And so I would say the arrangement of the Gospels are in kairos moment order, chirological. So there's a new word for big people. But the geographical order, I think arranging Mark in that geographical uh, kind of overlay is definitely a something that I'm seeing that would de definitely tie it back to an Exodus type of uh, illusion. Mm -hmm. Like moving from the wilderness to Jerusalem. Yes. The promised yes. land. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like deliverance out of and mm -hmm. delivered into. Yeah. So does this give us then the reason, could it be the reason that Mark doesn't include the resurrection? and this is my conclusion to this, is Moses didn't enter into the promised land. Mm. And so the resurrection is cut off and Jesus just dies in the tomb. So could this, could this be the allusion to that's where this, the, basically this, their Moses actually doesn't enter in. Definitely could be. That's 10 chapters away. So we definitely have right, right. a little yeah, bit of time yeah. to figure that one out. Okay. Let's I get think, back to I that. Think, I mean, um, from a literary perspective, that's really interesting. I want to put a pin on it that, for when we get there. Put a I pin think on that it. We, but we should, we should look at major things and archetypes of scripture. And one of those mm -hmm. ideas is that Jesus is the new Messiah. Messiah has the same context of, of Moses. The same, right. like mm -hmm. Jesus' name is, is Joshua, second, Moses' second. And so, right. like, right. Joshua was right. this Messiah figured. The, um, the Messiah was, was this person that brings Israel into, into new life. Right. Okay. I just wanted to spend some time before we get into that heart of the text that we mentioned that I think last week we did. Yeah. But yeah, but this week I mm -hmm. spent some time thinking about that and perusing around and, and really 
not convinced yet because I'm not really convinced the story's not over yet with Jesus. So I'm not convinced of much anymore, but, but I, I'm not convinced, but I'm, I'm definitely intrigued by that narrative overlay. So let's go back to 21, okay. the lamp on mm -hmm. a stand. Why? <clears throat> Any thoughts on this first chapter or this first uh, section? What I was thinking about was um, the parables in this section are all talking about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and so you put a, a lamp on a lampstand, you don't hide it. It's there and visible. Um, and I thought that was an interesting contrast, um, to Mark's hidden Jesus, um, or hidden Messiah. Um, this idea that Jesus's identity stays hidden for a majority of the book. Right. Yeah. If not the whole book, right? So it was mm -hmm. like a contradiction to... Yeah. The hidden Jesus. Or maybe um maybe Jesus is drawing more attention to the kingdom of God rather than to himself. Yeah. Okay. It's it is interesting as well that that the the light under under a a, a shade goes right into how we judge others and that everything everything will be revealed. And so mm -hmm. um it's kind of the idea that there's no, there's no purpose in judging others. It's going to be, it's, it's all will be revealed in the end. Right. Listen carefully. God will evaluate you with the same standard you use to evaluate others. Pretty harsh. That is very yeah. harsh. So, so God will judge you like you judge others, basically. Let's use some harsher language. Yeah. So the uh, this this week I'm preaching on the external factors of shame, judgment, silence, and trauma. Happy sermon. It's gonna be great. <laughs> the idea is that um, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we are to judge others. You can proof tech that all that you want, but that it doesn't ever say that. Um, well, we and if you look at somebody Romans, that says, "Well, we're allowed to in the Pauline letters," I probably point them to Romans two one, um, where it says, "You who judge do the exact same thing." And so and there's a lot of contradiction in that, and there's a lot of ideas that we have discernment over others, like we have a gut feeling or a gut reaction over people, but. This idea to judge or to evaluate is the idea of condemnation and putting people on the outside. And so if, if you put people on the outside, like Jesus is saying in 24, um, you're going to be, you're going to be found on the outside as well. Right. Yeah. So I think you gotta think about judgment to discernment to condemnation. And so those, those three ideas that we aren't to judge, we're not to condemn we are to have discernment and to feel our way through because all, all decisions are emotional no matter what. So we're making, we're making judgment calls all the time, 
but if that affects another person's status in society, that's when it changes. Well, I think part of acceptance to give the contra to that part of acceptance is judgment, but it's, I would say a different form of what you're talking about. We all have a sense of evaluation where we're looking at this over that, um, whether it be aesthetically, whether it be behaviorally, I would rather be like this than that. Um, but part of acceptance is seeing your own self within another person. And so when you accept someone, you actually have evaluated their behavior and you see yourself capable of the same good and not so good. So you're able mm -hmm. to absorb. So the question then is when we are so harsh on judging sin, that's actually saying that you cannot see yourself doing what that other person is doing, which is the basis of pride. And then, mm -hmm. and then Paul would say that all have fallen short and have sinned. So all have done or all are capable of doing, as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount would say, that all are capable of will at least within the heart to do all that humans are capable of doing that is sinful evil. So our judgment of another and othering is actually a form of pride and form of using that pride to tear down another person, actually saying to yourself that you're not capable of something. And I think that that's pretty um, immature I would say yeah. to think that you're not capable of the greatest of, of evil. I guess you don't know yourself. Yeah. The, uh, Oprah put out a book last year with a neuroscientist, Dr. Perry. And the whole premise is to change, to change your question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And so it's, it's, it's in that story that we find I think what Kevin, you're talking about is, is empathy of, of living in someone else's situation so that we know right. what they've gone through. And so, yeah, change, changing the story from, from what happened to, or sorry, from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Right. Right. Because I think that if we were put in somebody else's shoes for a period of time, we might even be worse. Explain that more. Well, I mean, if I look at somebody's, you know, that has survived trauma and they've su survived horrific trauma and then they have a certain behavioral pattern, maybe they just are irritating or maybe they just talk too much or maybe they um, say inappropriate things or they interrupt or they just don't have like a lot of social skills, let's say, because they've endured a lot of trauma and so their social skills are inhibited. Let's just say that's the consequence or the effect of the trauma. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very easy to judge somebody in a social circle like that. So, you know, if, if you just saw yourself in their shoes for a moment and said, well, what would happen to me if I went through what they went through? Or if I had to endure, maybe they're pretty strong. And this is the only consequence of their trauma. Maybe I would enter into that trauma and I would end up 
hurting another person in a violent way yeah. or and to and you know and ending up in a facility of some kind because of my my i had a mental break because of the trauma that i endured so so we don't yeah, know what you're talking about is yeah that that empathetic language that yeah um, and the story gathering is what you're right. what you're referring to yeah it's great thank you for putting language around it <laughs> i don't have language for certain things empathy <laughs> Empathy. Uh, empathy. Social, emotional, <laughs> empathy. Empathy. Okay, let's go to the next scripture passage, if we can, unless we have more to talk about. Jake, would you uh, pick that next <clears throat> section up? Is that the next slide? Did I mess up? I think we have 26. Uh, it's 26. I have it. I have the text in front of oh. me. Oh, yeah, go to the next. Oh, I see. That last okay, paragraph. here we go. Yeah, sorry, Rob, go back, it. bud. Then Jesus said, this is what God's kingdom is like. It is as though someone scattered seed in the ground, then sleeps and wakes at night. The seed sprouts and grows, but the farmer doesn't know how. The earth produces crops all by itself, first a stalk, and then the head, and the full grain. Whenever the crop is ready, the farmer goes out and cut the grain. Do we have another slide for that section or no? I'll just read it. No, you do. Oh, there it is. He continued, what is a good image for God's kingdom? What parable can I use to explain it? Consider the mustard seed. When scattered in the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. But when it's planted, it grows and becomes largest of all vegetable plants it produces such large branches that the birds in the sky are able to nest in its shade with so many such parables he continued to give them the word as much as they were able to hear he spoke to them only in parables then explained everything to his disciples when he was alone with them jesus is talking my language right now yeah why is that go why? for it Go for it. Well, like my asparagus is coming up out of the ground again, and mm. I'm just so excited to see it again. And I have no idea when the asparagus is going to show up. I have no idea what it does over the winter. It's just under the ground, hopefully Boom, surviving. Right. Yeah. And then it comes back. Mm-hmm. What do you think, And Kevin? the wild mustard. Wild mustard is everywhere this time of year. Mm -hmm. It's true, yeah. Yeah, there is a metaphor there that spring, the first, the idea of the almond blossom, mm -hmm. the mustard <laughs> seed. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if anyone is following the super bloom in California right now, where all the California poppies are coming out, and it's mm. the largest bloom in the last like three decades. And so because of all the rain that California has received right. and snow in the last few years, or last few months, I'm sorry, um, it's the largest bloom ever. So you can just go on and Google mm. that. It's, it's quite beautiful. Um, something about this passage, um, when it's called the eschatological tree or the end times tree. Mm. And so you go back to Ezekiel and it talks about the cedar being cut down and a shoot coming out of the cedar. 
and that shoot becomes so large that it it creates uh, renewal, regeneration, recreation. And now Jesus took that view of a tree, of this strong image, and used a shrub instead. And mm. um, so even though it was the smallest of all seeds, it will become the largest shrub possible. So much that the birds in the sky are able to nest in the shade, which when you look at birds in the sky, the um, it's a allusion to all the other nations as well. And so when, when Jesus is talking with this parable specifically, he's alluding to all nations being saved under the, under the mustard seed of, of salvation. Nice. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's nice. This is the passage that makes me think about um, mustard seed ministry versus metaphysics. And unfortunately, in our evangelicalism of today, we have spent a lot of time in metaphysics. And if you get offended by that, I'm not sorry. Um, so I think that that needs to be offensive to change us because we spend our minds talking and thinking and uh, pontificating in the clouds about God. And Jesus didn't do that. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. He spent time more in mustard seeds than metaphysics. He didn't talk about the metaphysics. And so, so vineyards and feeding and clothing and table ministry and food, mm -hmm. bread and wine, it was very tangible and very mustard seed. But unfortunately, we've spent so much time in metaphysics that we um, have lost our, our grounding, not to give a pun, but our grounding to the earth. So the Jews actually believed in three levels of a heaven. When, when you read the, in the Bible about the heavens, there's three heavens that they would call the heavens. And so Jesus is actually referring the birds of the sky is the firmament heaven. So that is the first. And, you know, there's traditions um, and more outside of traditional Christianity. There's certain church movements that believe in the third level of heaven. So know that those church movements that believe in the third level of heaven didn't just pull that out from somewhere. They actually got it from somewhere. And whether that's true theology is up for debate. But, uh, but the Jews actually had this thought of firmament and then the stars of the sky. So the heavens would be the starry sky, space. And then the next level of heaven would be where God lived. So that would be a God place. So we have the firmament. Jesus talked in the firmament. And his level of idea of heaven was firmament. It was the earth. And the birds of the sky meant something. It meant that that the place that even the angels of that sky had a place to live because the ministry 
that we did in the mustard seed would give them, even the angels, a place to live. And so when I look at this idea of mustard seed ministry, I think about, are we feeding the poor, clothing the naked, housing the houseless? Are we healing the broken? Are we actually doing something tangible with people of mental disability and illnesses? Are we looking at people that have disabilities and are we walking for them? Are we carrying them to the house, breaking open the roof and lowering them to the healer? Are we actually being that kind of people for the people around us that can't maybe see metaphorically and physically? They can't hear metaphorically and physically. They can't walk metaphorically and physically. Are we walking alongside people in the mustard seed? Versus the metaphysics. I'm so sick and freaking tired of all these conversations about like Calvinism and Arminianism and eschatology and times theology through the book of Revelation and all the things that people are enamored because people are enamored with metaphysics. Why are they enamored? Because in metaphysics, it makes us feel good because it taps into our, let's say our, um, the, god the complex maybe maybe that we are god yeah and that we can play that role of god in in the highest level of heaven but we are not it it it, it doesn't require us to do anything it doesn't require us to be human so in the metaphysics it requires us to be all up in space all up in the in the heavens but it doesn't require us to actually do anything so i would say that we are in a very lazy 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 christianity where we just sit in our chairs we receive this sermon and if the music's not good enough we complain and go to another church if the things the smorgasbord of table of plenty is not, you know, just perfect. My salad bar doesn't have ranch dressing on it. Then I get to go somewhere else, right? So my smorgasbord of church. That's what the church has become. And I hear it all the time. And I, I hear what preachers are doing. Um, and I'm not going to judge other churches, but I would say that the church universal has become very metaphysical, almost Idol. like falsely metaphysically idle yeah um and so that's just my word huh the uh at the at a group this morning we both were at we watched a video with uh Myroslav Wolf who's a uh I believe a Princeton theologian talking about idle faith and what you were talking about Kevin the the idea that our faith doesn't move our faith doesn't move forward if we're stuck, if we're stuck in idle, if we're just stuck in the the chairs, stuck listening, stuck in the metaphysical. The metaphysical means um, outside of of physical. It's the mental ascent into, and I called it the God complex earlier that that we create God in our image instead of allowing allowing God to create the image of God's self around us. Right, right. I think that's that would be my best definition of of metaphysical. But with, with the idea of idle faith or, or complacency or lazy, as you were saying, 
um, what he brought up was when you look at the book of Job and we're going to see in the next story here. Um, and it just reminded me of this cause Jesus was in the whirlwind and the whirlwind is a, is a large theme in Job as well. But when you look at, at Job, one of, one of his friends came around to him and asked why he was targeted that way. Did he remember to feed the poor and to house the homeless? And so since he had, like Job had to act on his faith in order for him to be in a normal situation back then. Make sense? Yeah, I would say my definition of metaphysical is more the self-actualizing. And so meta, the idea of meta, like metamorphosis, means the changing of self. And so this idea of metaphysical just means this constant talk about self-actualization with God. It's not other physical. It's not, it's not looking at the other physically and spiritually. So, so you could almost say that when you are metaphysical, you are above the physical. Above reality even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, it's very frustrating to me in um, what I see and what I experience sometimes that when the parable or the, the word is given where it says, if you have faith like a what? Mustard seed. You can. Dre, I'm not sure. Go for it. There's something How's about the mountains. Can't you move uh, mountains? Oh. Right. And so when we have the mustard seed ministry, when we have metaphysical ministry, we're not even moving, you know, a shovel of dirt, let alone a mountain. But when we have a mustard seed ministry, we literally can move mountains. Because that's, that's what we're doing is we're moving people's mountains. We're helping them move mountains. We're releasing, we're actually ushering in the Jubilee, Luke 4, where we're ushering in mm. when Jesus read the Isaiah scroll and opened it up in the temple. And he said, the captives will be set free, the debts will be paid, and all oppressed will experience freedom. That year of Jubilee is only done through mustard faith mustard ministry it's not done in metaphysics yeah it's great go to that next section we're like not even close to where our goal is go ahead kevin <laughs> go ahead jake since my since my cold i'll have you read it later that day when evening came Jesus said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. They left the crowd and took him in the boat, just as he was. Other boats followed along. Gale force winds arose, a whirlwind arose. and Waves crashed against the boat so that the boat was swamped. But Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on the pillow. <clears throat> they woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? He got up and gave orders to the wind. And he said to the lake, silence, be still. 
The wind settled down, and there was a great calm. Jesus asked, Why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? Hmm. Overcome with awe, they said to each other, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Moses. <laughs> Moses? Moses. I'm trying to Commanding think about the, the cross. Seas. Commanding one, the seas. One of the... One of the questions that uh, that is was is this the new Moses? Yeah, and I had to I had to think about that. But it's like, why doesn't he call down Elijah? And so, like even that, even that is there as well. So yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that passage. Any thoughts from anybody? Well, I would say that in. Judaism, a lot of thought that the spirits, the evil spirits, the demonic, demonic live within the waters. So in the deep sea, the monsters live. Monsters still live in the water. When I go scuba diving, when I go snorkeling, (laughs) monsters live in those waters. When I have to swim in a deep lake, monsters are going to take off my feet. Call them sea lions or otters, monsters, right? So we actually still believe monsters are in the water because that's why we're afraid of water. Something's going to eat us in the water. And so the Jews, a lot of the thought was that the demons lived in the deep. Does anyone know where that came from? Because I was just doing a little quick deep dive because I don't know if I know where that came from. Because Leviathan is like within the waters. So evil, yeah. demonic is within the But like the I've been swimming too. And when you get to that drop off, oh, like that's a big nope. Like everything in me says no. No, no there are Sa- there. Satan is there. Satan's down there. Um, so the idea that I would point to is every river had its own deity. Ah. Mm. And so river gods and water gods, sea gods, Poseidon, um, right. uh, gosh, in, in the, um, the Iliad, <clears throat> Achilles is attacked by the river God. And so if you think around the same time period, maybe the idea maybe a little before actually, but there was, there was great deity within, within mm-hmm. the, uh, within the rivers. And so the idea is that this is a spiritual place because we have, the humans have no control over it and right. it captures a lot of lives. Um, and this is, the, this is why, this is why Jesus having command over that shows eternity shows salvation because evil, yeah. Yeah, that means he has the command even over the evil to crush it. So, um, yeah, that, and then definitely. And to make that point, Kevin, um the with demonics the jesus had control and power over the demonics in in israel jesus is moving to having com- control and power over the demonics in the supernatural or like the in-between moments and then we're running into the next story where jesus has control and power over the demonics in other in other kingdoms and so jesus is leaving israel here and going into a different land 
And so the idea is that Jesus is above all other, other yeah. deities. I, th- I think it's demigods. the same story. Like Sharia said, remember that there's no cut breaks in the page. There's no right. chapters and verses and titling. So if you remove that and you just read it like on the page, like you were reading it on a scroll, that that story of Jesus and the water and the commanding of the sea goes right into the demon-possessed man in the next story in chapter five. So it's a seamless transition to where anybody reading that, I mean, it just makes sense that they would have tied that story together. Like you're saying that he's just moving geographically again, making movement geographically. That's great. Just having control over the demons, which is a, which is a, a, a spiritual, reality that Jesus is God and he's like showing them God-like activity. Yeah. I think we could say that and to point it back to your Moses, your Moses connection, um, Moses had control over the plagues. Yeah. He had control over the natural world. Mm-hmm. Well, I just think that that sea, that Jesus having control over the waves in the sea mm-hmm. and the evil living in the sea, again, in the story of the Exodus, if you're not familiar, the Israelite people or the, the Hebrew people are, are let go. They're told to leave. They leave. But then, of course, that would have shown a complete economic collapse of Egypt's sustenance and the ability to make money um, if you release all the slaves. And so they released Mm -hmm. all the slaves. They probably saw preview of coming attractions, chased them down um, at that point, go get them. And now we're standing at the Reed Sea where then... They cross the Red Sea because, of course, the magic happens where the the water then splits and the waves begin to rumble and the water splits. And so, again, Moses having control not only of the plagues but of the sea. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, he had to have the staff, raise the staff, so we know that God really has control of the the seas, but we see that this there's an illusion here. I think that can't be, um, that can't be forgotten. Missed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's great. Shreya, do you have any other thoughts on that? Um, just thinking about how this passage is used, been used to tell people they can't be afraid that fear is the antithesis Mm. of faith. You can't have faith and fear at the same time. And I think that's wrong. Well, it's more than wrong. It's abusive. Right. Yeah. I would say that that's just an example of toxic theology or toxic teaching where, you know, faith and fear actually go hand in hand. 
where really you can't have a very strong faith without a knowledge of fear or doubt. And so mm -hmm. the opposite emotions of faith are required for mm -hmm. faith. Yeah. So, so it's just crazy to think that we can, you know, swim in chocolate milk our whole lives and pretend like life is, you know, that, I guess, easy and mm -hmm. sweet and innocent um, and not get, you know, I guess, in life a little bit so that we understand faith a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and we bring Descartes into this as well. Oh, um, boy. The, uh, the, um, we all know the, uh, the, the, I think therefore I am. Oh yeah. And I think that we've definitely brought this up before, but, um, debito ego sum conjuto ego sum. So it's the, I doubt therefore I think, sorry, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think, therefore, I am. So it's it is in the doubt, it's in the fear that we're able to to think, to grow, to even have I think faith. Without without doubt, there is no faith. Um, Kevin, you can talk to this about the the two parallels of the brain that that one side is the force against, and so it runs smoother, right? Yeah. So so duality um binary type things are essential at least one opposite idea is essential for the other opposite to be existent or efficient or good so if i use this if I, if everyone can see my hand this is smooth but this is smoother. So when you have an opposite force on a force, it's more efficient and, and produces more, um, I guess, um, efficiency energy. So a opposite brain or an opposite action is required for movement, for efficiency and also for good so if you do good you have to know bad in order to know good otherwise how do you know it's good well you know it's good by the usually at least the majority you know it's good because you know what's bad so 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 life is built in that sense where you know what's up because you know what's down you know what's right because you know what's left it's the opposite of left is right right so so those are those are some examples yet there's other things that are more on a spectrum where you really you really um don't know where the end is it might be your end 
like space would be an example of that where space has no end space is like on a spectrum so somewhere is your end maybe you die out there that's your end or what in the vacuum in the vacuum yeah like you just die in the vacuum or you are circling the earth so that in a sense has no end but the, but most things that we um, provide power, provide efficiency, provide strength, provide thought, provide input, provide um, creation. We know it's created because we know the anti-creation. So, so that's my example of like there needs to be two sides. So our brain works that way. You need... Yeah. two sides of your brain now there's some cases where people have had a side of their brain literally removed so what happens to them they always thought that those people would literally run amok that they would not have any control of their brain but yet their brain becomes the initiator and the counter so there's the yeah, same side there's yeah of the same side so the same side then begins that form of action where you have the movement and the anti-movement of the synapse and so somebody that has their brain partially removed the brain actually compensates that way but it works the same so so back to you shreya um I guess when people read the story, the idea that you're putting up and, and it's taught this way is that the opposite of, of faith is fear. What would you put the opposite of faith as? Hmm. Cause I hear what you're saying that they, you need fear yeah. in order to have faith. Are they opposites that? I wouldn't say that's an opposite though. And hmm. Yeah, but no. are, are they are they binary in that they they help each other perhaps? But what is the opposite of fear? Our faith. Sorry, what is the opposite of faith? There is none. Well, I was going to say maybe certainty. Oh, that's a good and so point. good job. That is great. That is actually the, very much. Yeah, the I would say that is the that is the opposite. Good job. I didn't think of that. So one. because so there's Jesus sin and certainty. Them, yeah, the sin of certainty. When so when Jesus asked them, "Why are you frightened? Do you have faith yet?" Hmm. So reframe reframe that question. What chapter, what uh, verse are you on? Verse 40. As I'm reading it right now, it almost, to me, seems more like a reassurance after the fact. Like, see, everything's okay. Mm -hmm. We made it out. Got it. Yeah. Mm. Chill. You're being too loud. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would so, say I would say that what I was saying, the uh, you have to have counter arguments to the argument. So I can make an argument for my faith, right? 
but the counter argument includes fear and doubt. And I would say Sharia probably nailed it on the head that if that if I have certainty, I don't need faith. Mm -hmm. Um, but then we have faith and certainty. So at what point do we do we actually see the truest opposite of faith? I'm not sure. <clears throat> Maybe it's one of those there is no end. Narcissism, Maybe it's on a spectrum. Perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. That's all good stuff. Not Thank about you. the storm at all, but that's great. Well, it's not about the storm. That's the that's problem. The whole with this. The story. I mean, that's the problem with reading the scriptures like people have. It's not about the storm. Okay, let's read. We're in the fifth chapter now. We're on our way. And let's uh let's read the entire okay, story I'll read again, it. all the way to twenty. Thank you. Thank you. This will be our last story because okay. that's what the time we have. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs. This man lived among the tombs, and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him, even with the chain. He had been secured many times with leg irons and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and in the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and knelt before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, Unclean spirit, come out of the man. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He responded, Legion is my name, because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, so the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the very man who had been filled with many demons sitting there fully dressed and completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. While he was climbing into the boat, the one who had been demon-possessed pleaded with Jesus to let him come along as one of his disciples. But Jesus wouldn't allow it. Go home to your own people, Jesus said, and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. The man went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. So is this story about the pigs? <laughs> Jake, why do Jews have pigs? 
<laughs> oh. Forgive me. I moved closer to the router so I'd have better internet, and here I am. Um, <clears throat> so the idea of why do Jews have pigs? pigs? There's no Jews in this story besides Jesus. Okay. Um, that we're on the other side of the lake now. We're in the Decathlon. So the no Decopolis. Jews. There's no Jews in this story. Okay. Besides Jesus. <laughs> Not even the pigs are Jewish. So this is, there's a few ways that you can take this story. And all are fine and dandy. There's a narrative that, that we learned a little while ago that I think explains it better. Um, and I think for, for scripture, you need to take the life of pie principle, not necessarily what is truth or what isn't truth, but what tells the better story. Um, because we have no idea what truth is. We're just, we're just here reading the text 2000 years from when it was written. Um, and it was penned down 70 years after it was, after it was, it happened. So think about trying to record narratives and stories that your great grandfather did that you had no connection to. Mm -hmm. So with that, um, we look at the story of Jesus in the Decapolis crossed over. Now he's in the, in the Roman side, especially Roman side of the Mediterranean area. And so the whole in, area, the whole area is without Jews. Well, I, I, there, there might be Jews there. I don't think, I, I mean, we don't really know who was there, but it was predominantly the Decapolis was a, was a Roman civilization. The Gerasenes where he was at was a retirement community for Roman soldiers. You want to try to keep going or do you want me to wait there for keep a bit? Keep going. No, I'm, I'm just interested. I'm just going to continue to throw that question out. So the, <laughs> why, when, when you read this story, um, and when you read stories in scripture and there's an odd piece to it, you need to stop and reflect what is actually happening here. And so the oddest piece here is that the, that the, the, the pigs went and jumped off a cliff into the water and they all drowned. That is the weirdest okay. piece because pigs can swim. And so we think something is definitely wrong in this situation. Um, there's other stories like, uh, Jesus on the road to, um, not Damascus, but um, help me out. Emmaus. Read to Emmaus. And so Jesus breaks the bread at the table, right? That was never a position for anyone other than the master of the house to break the bread. And so that story is to make you stop and ponder. So you have these tripping, these tripping stones of, of in, in scripture, uh, pigs, not swimming is a tripping stone. So he was right. in Gerasenes, which is a, a Roman uh, soldier, especially the elite soldier um, retirement community on the Mediterranean coast. Then he had, he takes out this demon by the name of Legion, which is very closely resemblance to the Legion of the Roman army. 
And then you have pigs and the, the soldiers who were occupying the Decapolis into northern, I believe, uh, Israel at the time, the standard, the flag that they would carry around with them was the standard of the pig. It's like the flag that goes before them, like the phoenix or the crow or whatever. Theirs was the pig. And they were known to be very violent, very aggressive, very mean. And so I think that Mark is playing a little cheeky game with a story to say that even you will have to come to to repentance, to confession, and to understanding, and you will live under the new kingdom of God. So how many pigs were or there? Doesn't matter. Well, if Legion... 2000, it's what dead. Is, what is Legion... What's that number? Um, not sure. Thousand? Hundred? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe a thousand. And so, two thousand pigs went and jumped Centurion, off. Because Centurion Legion. Sorry, so a Legion consisted of three thousand men. Mm, three thousand. But in the time of Christ, it consisted of six thousand, exclusive of horsemen. It is a very large group. So it's called Legion. Is a very large group. So the pigs. There's got to be something to these pigs because they're central to the story. I think he's just this little playing a little metaphor, playing a metaphor game of, of a very easy crossover okay. between the Roman army and, and pigs. Well, okay. That, that, and so if so, we go back. So if, so if you're telling me, sorry, you're telling me, that there's no Jews in this area because it's an there's area no where Jews a thousand Roman story in this story, but in this area, there were, there were probably Jews. This that is lived where this there. is. Well, if Jews lived there, there wouldn't be that many pigs, but servants and as, as like as slaves. Yeah, they would, they would live there. Okay. Good point. The pigs got to be something in this story. They have Other the evil spirit inside of them, and they run into the water and drown. They start out in the possessed man, though, um, like an yeah. occupying force, mm -hmm. like the Roman Empire occupying Judea. Right. But they le the spirits leave the right. legion and go Which, into the pigs and the pigs run into a, the water and drown and they're casting out and it's like a messianic thing right overthrowing the roman empire so there's that's, no that's jews here metaphorically in the story metaphorically can you say there's no jews i'd say narratively there are no jews in the story Besides Jesus. And the, the man wasn't and Jewish so, because he was called to go back the, to his people. How did people, Jesus get to this place? Crossed the, crossed the lake on the other side of the lake. Right. So the Jews are on the other side of the water. 
if you're trying no to get pig, somewhere, there's you no need Jews to on it. this. There's no Jews on this side of the water. Okay. Because they're not listed in the story. This is Correct. where a thousand Roman soldiers died in history. I yeah. just think that these are the Egyptian people. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's, I mean, I've been, I've been like, I've been thinking about this all week long. It's like, how could this not be the Egyptian people? So you and Legion is like Pharaoh, like here. Legion is like Pharaoh. And so the demons are casted literally out of Pharaoh into the pigs, the Egyptians, which would be abhorrent to Jews. And they literally drown in the water. Just like the Egyptians How many? when they cross the Red Sea. Mm. What are you How looking for? How many died? How many who died? I'm, the Romans? A thousand. I'm looking to see how no, how many how many uh Egyptian Egyptians died in in the in the Reed Sea collapse. Exodus fourteen. Oh, are you looking for the three thousand? It's it would be that easy. Because if you can find that, this that's messed up because that just is messed up. So find that. <laughs> can you can you explain why it would be messed up while we're looking? Because that's well, like, too that's too easy of a relationship between the two. But there so are I, easy so relationships. It's, it's kinda like the second Pentecost where yeah. you know how many thousands died and Twenty five hundred and twenty five hundred were added to their number that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's just a retelling of of the Pentecost. Right. The first Pentecost was on Mount Sinai. Second Pentecost. Was how many? How two. many Egyptian soldiers died? I'm trying to find it. Shreya? It just says the, the entire Egyptian army. So a large amount. Okay. Exodus fourteen seven. What does that say? Six hundred elite chariots and all of Egypt's other chariots with captains on all of them. So we're at least twelve hundred. Yeah. Okay. A large number. I, I'm just I'm just saying that if if the hypothesis because number one, this story is abhorrent to Jews because to even have a to even have a story like this in a sacred text that would speak to Jewish people and you include pigs mm. in their brain, they would automatically go to a place because pigs were like not eaten, not around. You couldn't have bacon in your broccoli crunch salad. You couldn't like nothing like pigs were just on the, they were not anywhere to be found. So the reason why I ask, were there Jews in this story? Because why are there pigs? Because there's no Jews in this story. You answered it. The Jews are on the other side, but then the pigs go into the water and drown. I don't know. Let's let's add something to your to your hypothesis here, Kevin. Uh, Rob, if you okay. want to throw up that last slide again. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. Uh, next slide. 
Those who tended the pigs ran away and they told the story in the city of the countryside. People came to see what happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who was being possessed. They saw the man who had been filled. Those who actually seen what the demon possessed told the others about the pigs. They pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. Mm. So tie that into your Exodus narrative there, Kevin. They pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. Well, that would be that would be Pharaoh pleading the Hebrews to leave. Mm-hmm. After the plagues, right? After the the death of the right. uh, firstborn side. Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah, so the entire nation pleaded for the for the Hebrew people to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like I, I I I all I'm saying is that is that this story has always been thought of as a cute miracle, a eh? then we have this like idea of you know the Roman soldier like retirement area. Um but in reality that's, that's, that's high criticism. That's 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 a, right. a much later thought. Right. So this is the area where a thousand Roman soldiers were attacked and died. So it's like a memorial area, the Decapolis type area. Isn't that what it's called? So, yeah. so this area, cities. what? The 10 cities. Yeah. Right. So this area is very Roman, but also like a memorialized uh, region. It's a sacred region to... So it's an important place for leaders and people. And so right at the center of this story, why would a demon-possessed man be in this region in the first place? I mean, if this is a place for honored citizens and there's money there and there's this person, why is why are they there? So, so... Contemporary scholars pretty much think that this is skeptical, that this is even a historical story. It doesn't have to be a historical story to be the word of God. And so let's just get that clear. So this could be a story that was just told. Um, and Jesus could have told it. So, so you can noodle around with that work later. But, but this is an important area and the text would have been for of course jewish people also so having pigs at the center of the story becomes very controversial so a jew would have been reading this and the first thoughts was what is the most abhorrent abhorrent type who's a pig in my life they used to celebrate the passover every year so the exodus story for the Jews would have been a very important story and most everybody would have known it and they were reminded of it every year and they were reminded of it on a regular basis. So, so it's not like us today where we, you know, watched the Prince of Egypt once and that was great. And we got the Exodus story in one time in our life, they would have known it very well. And so, so the Torah was very important to them. And and not only did they learn it in Hebrew from an early age, but they they would have just memorized large portions of it and they would have known every story and big picture and how it relates to life and the law and everything. So so it just makes sense that to me, pigs in the story signal something very abhorrent. And that to me would be the metaphor, the legion would be the demon-possessed 
Pharaoh, the spirits, the evil spirits would have been the Egyptians casted, of course, into pigs that went into water and drowned with the Hebrew people on the other side of the lake. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it maps on well. What? Something Say that one more time, Shreya. Pretty well. Okay. Something That's interesting that my radical that we think is thinking. Something interesting that we think as well is that the Decapolis are these this group of like ten small cities on the other side of the lake, right? I think that's that was helpful for the narrative, but the Decapolis was actually all of Judea at the time of Roman occupation, um, mm. all of it. And so, yeah. um, it also points to to perhaps Mark being a late a late date in mm-hmm. in writing because there would be more reference to the Decapolis rather than to to Jewish towns. cities. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and so the. Yeah. So the uh, for the narrative, I think they dialed in on it, but really, we're looking at the Decapolis is is the entire region of Judea. Yeah. So the story isn't really about the demon possessed man getting healed. I don't think. Well, it is. It isn't. I mean, I guess, yes, the story is about that, but it's not the message. The If you use the semiotic mm-hmm. tool, what's the sign? What's the meaning? What's the, let's give it meaning. I just think it's a bigger, it's a bigger metaphor than it has to be a bigger metaphor. And, and we can, we can take especially parables or stories and, and this text and put, apply different lenses to them so that. The meaning is always the same. Always the same. Is the power oh, of Jesus yeah. over yeah. over the opposite, right? Um, Salvation. But how we get, but how Only. we get there can be completely different, right? Right. With the same text, there are some stories that I believe the meaning is not the same, and we really have to look into into that. Yeah. Uh, the parable of the talents is one of those for me that the meaning is not the same. If you, mm-hmm. if you look at it any other way, I don't, I don't know how you do um, anymore. Right. Right. But like this story here, we can get to the same conclusion in so many different ways, be it a militaristic, being a very just straightforward, being about the, the Egyptian army and, and metaphoring all the way back to there. Um, the life of Pi, I think the theory is or that whatever just is the think, best story. Or honestly, you can just take it first layer and just say, "Yeah, this was a great story about Jesus healing a demon possessed person." Oh, that's what I thought I said wrong. first. I'm sorry. What? I thought, I thought I said that first. Maybe I didn't. Sorry. Oh, I mean, just that simple like layer of that's just a great story, and it's all right. Yeah, but what awesome. we do with it is more important. Sharia, thank you. Jake, thank you. We made it through a little bit more of Mark. Pick it up next week. 
Good night, everybody. Okay. Awesome. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening.